my question arises from the fact that, in my view, almost all our interpersonal relationships have some element of power and dominion to some extent. Our relationships with our parents, with our friends, uh, with our significant others, uh, and it becomes much more intensified in kink relationships, specifically in uh, dominant submissive uh, relationships. And this is a great field to uh, explore what we mean by autonomy in this, um, in this spectrum. I mean, to, to which extent you can give yourself to someone else, not necessarily in a sexual sense, uh, sense but uh, let's say in a sexual sense, without impacting your own autonomy. Uh, how can you consent to this kind of uh, giving yourself? Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of our podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That? by the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I'm Dani, and I'm a PhD student chatting with peers about their academic journeys in the hope to gain some tips and tricks for my own journey. Today, Eli Benjamin Israel is our guest. Eli holds a BA and MA in philosophy from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem during which he was especially interested in Kant. Currently, Eli is a PhD student at the Temple University in Philadelphia, and his specializations are ethics, Kant, philosophy of religion, and philosophy of sex and love. But before we get into a philosophical debate, I would like to remind you of our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us with the handle at what to do with that, where the two is spelled like the number two. You're invited to connect with us and we'd love to hear from you. We also have a blog on our website and videos on our YouTube channel. And while you're at it, don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app. All right, now let's get back to Ellie. Ellie Benjamin Israel has a BA and an MA, as I said, in philosophy from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And during his MA, he was also a teaching fellow he received the award for Outstanding Philosophy Graduate Students from the JNF KKL Switzerland Israel Foundation for the Promotion of Philosophy in Israel, and he wrote his thesis on Kant and immortality. And as if he wasn't busy enough, Eli co-founded and organized the Philosophy 360 Degrees Annual Interdisciplinary Conferences for BA and MA students at the Hebrew University. Eli started his PhD in 2021 at the Department of Philosophy at Temple University in Philadelphia. Ellie is a member of the Society for the Philosophy of Sex and Love and is working on publications with the titles Perfection and Pleasure in Mel Branch's Theory of Love and Kant on Marital Rape. Welcome, Ellie. I'm sure that we'll have a very interesting conversation today. How are you doing? Great. Thanks so much for having me, Danny. Uh, it's great being here. Uh, it was a lovely introduction. Yeah, very interesting. I haven't had a philosopher on the show yet. Um, not as much as you are really focusing only on this, at least. So I'm very curious. Uh, I do feel like I could use a drink together with that. So I got my little regular amaretto with me. What are you having today? Uh, I'm having what's something that became some kind of a signature drink of mine since I got here in the US, which is rye whiskey. I was used to drink scotch 
in Israel. And here I discovered uh, that rye whiskey is actually kind of nice. I was opposed to uh, American whiskeys that are usually made of corn and they're very sweet, but this one has this kind of spice that I like. Okay, I should try it sometime too, but cheers. Totally. Cheers. Yeah, I never heard of that. So it's of rye, not of corn. Exactly. Interesting. I have to look that up. Okay, let me start with a few short questions. What does your morning routine look like? You don't want to know. <laughs> Is it that bad? <laughs> I mean, I have, two, I, I have two kids. I have a two and a half years old and a, a baby of nine months, I think. So my mornings uh, start very early, uh, preparing them for, uh, for school. Actually, after they go to school with their mother, my, my wife uh, is a teacher in the same school. Uh, so I really start my professional morning routine, which is much more calm, uh, answering emails and uh, start and I try to start writing as soon as possible. Okay, but it takes some time until everyone leaves the house. I bet. Yeah, about like three hours, yes. <laughs> they wake up very early in the morning. <laughs> All right. Um, I understand that you grew up in Brazil. Exactly. Right? Are there any foods that you miss from there? Uh, one of the big advantages of moving to the U.S. Uh, is that there is a very big Brazilian community here. So there's a lot of uh, Brazilian food that I missed uh, when I was in Israel like uh, something that we call pão queijo, which is like uh, cheese bread, best thing ever. Uh, and he actually, it's very available. It's pretty easy to, to find uh, those Brazilian treats in here. I think that's the first thing that I saw after I got out of the airplane in uh, Brazil, in yeah. Rio. I saw people in the streets selling these cheese breads that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, they're pretty good and they're everywhere. Yeah, so it's nice that you exactly. have it now in Philadelphia as well. Exactly. What do you like the most about Philadelphia though? Philadelphia, uh, I got to know Philadelphia in a very strange time, like post COVID, actually during COVID. Uh, so I always hear how things were better before, um, but still it's a very lively place with loving, uh, lovely people. In our first month here, we actually lived in West Philly. Uh, right now we are living actually in South Jersey, South New Jersey, um, uh, which is somewhat close to Philadelphia and like 30 minutes from Philadelphia. Um, but it's a very suburban area with, we have like a lake five minutes from my, nice. uh, from my apartment. Uh, ducks are running uh, just outside my uh, balcony, so it's a, a very, <clears throat> a very calm and uh, a nice neighborhood. So easy for you to work from home at, but I bet the kids like the ducks too. Yeah, they love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice. All right, but um, we will get to the point on how you got to Philadelphia, uh, but we'll start at the beginning, which for you, your academic journey started in Israel. You also referred to when back when I was in Israel, they didn't have the cheese breads. <laughs> so let's dig into your academic journey. Why did you study philosophy, right? What attracted you to it? Yeah, great. So uh, I actually didn't mean to study philosophy. 
I was on the path to be an entrepreneur and I started an open business right. just after the army and my army service, military service. And I decided to go and study economics. Mm-hmm. But I also had to choose a minor. And as a minor, I said, why not philosophy? Like, it's very intellectual and cool stuff. Uh, it can be interesting. Right in the very first weeks of my uh, studies at the Hebrew U, I realized two things. I realized that I did not want to continue studying uh, economics. I just hated it in a very, in a very strict way. And I also realized that I really love what I'm doing in philosophy. Like the introductory courses are in this very big house at the university. Uh, but there was one course called a reading, um, critical reading in philosophical texts in which we would uh, write several essays based on some philosophy papers. And then we would discuss our papers in papers in one-on-one meetings with our uh, teaching assistant. And these conversations of like an hour just about philosophy and about what we were reading were so exciting for me. And they really raised a a very big passion for philosophy. Later on, when I started my master's, I insisted on teaching this course as well because I knew how important it it is for uh, creating some kind of passion to philosophy. And what was it like? Did you get to teach that course in the end? Yeah, yeah. To be on the other side? Yeah, it was amazing, amazing experience. Um, The first year started in person. And then in March, we moved to to a virtual format. Um, But um, I love my students and we had a very good philosophy going on. Nice. Uh, I am also teaching a, a seminar this uh, semester and I also try to have discussions with the students and it, t- it took me some time to, to get them warmed up to open up <laughs> but now like we got into colonial theory and they're all very excited and uh, they speak up so it's, it's interesting to see that passion in the students um, when you're so passionate about the topic right? I totally agree with you like I remember times where just one day before they had to submit their papers I received a message from a student saying I don't understand this. I must discuss this with you, and we would like connect you, do a Zoom call at 9 p.m. just to to get this thing clear. So it was very exciting. Okay. okay. You also said that you continue with the MA, and that's when you were teaching, as I mentioned as well. Um, and I know that you wrote this thesis um, on Kant and immortality. So what was behind that? What's so interesting about that? Okay, cool. Uh, So I got to be interested in Kant in a very also not planned way. I, my second BA year, second year of my BA, I had an introduction to history of philosophy course uh, where we studied from Descartes to Immanuel Kant. Uh, And I wasn't like particularly interested uh, in any of the philosophers, but for some reason, I turns out I did quite a good work. And when we finished the semester, my TA invited me to join uh, the reading group of the graduate students um, on Kant's first critique. 
Uh, Kant has actually three uh, big books, the three critiques. Okay. So I just like, joined the group. It was an amazing experience with brilliant people. And it, this uh, reading group really got me immersed uh, on doing Kant. Uh, during the same year, I had, there was the first undergraduate conference in philosophy in Israel, happening in the high college. All right. And I had this idea of writing about um, the human strive for self-perpetuation. And one of the graduate students in the group suggested that I look into the second critique, which I did not know at the time, where Kant uh, suggested that we must, for moral purposes, assume that our soul is immortal. I found this claim very interesting and very puzzling also because Kant uh, has a very, very strict rational standards. And here uh, he suddenly asks us to assume uh, something that we have no acquaintance with in our experience. We have no acquaintance with anything that is infinite. And we have also no acquaintance with a soul. Every understanding we have of ourselves is an understanding that happens through our physical bodies. Uh, So I was trying to figure out how we can rationally believe in uh, the immortal soul. And my ultimate suggestion was that uh, through aesthetic experiences, we can access some kind of basic material to, to hold these views. All right. That does sound interesting. And you explained it in such a way that I totally understood it too. I was a bit nervous about maybe speaking to a philosopher <laughs> and not understanding what it's all about. But this was very easy. So thanks for that. Thank you. But during your MA, you obviously wrote the thesis and you taught. Uh, you also received an award for outstanding graduate students. Um, so you're very busy. But then you also have a little bit more time somehow to uh, co-found a group that's called Philosophy 360 Degrees. What is that? And how did you come up with that? So uh, Philosophy 360 was inspired by the same undergraduate conference that I told you about. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, I, I just love to have a very friendly stage to present my ideas from, very, from a very early stage in my career. Uh, so this was one of the motives to to do this project the second one is that philosophy departments at least under what we call in philosophy the analytical tradition uh, tend to be very closed within themselves like philosophers talking with philosophers and every paper is just read by the other five philosophers that uh, do the same uh, the same kind of research and i'm very in favor of um, interdisciplinary work, especially in philosophy, that uh, for every possible field that you may think about, there is philosophy of, mm, you mentioned that in part of the society, philosophy of sex and love, there's philosophy of biology, philosophy of physics, philosophy of psychology, and so on. So I found it very important to, um, to um, encourage people again, from the very early stages of the careers to do this kind of interdisciplinary work and also to engage people from other departments in what we do in philosophy. So that's a project that I ran uh, together with uh, two other friends that uh, were studying with me in my MBA, Neil Gottlieb and uh, Tali Katz. And it was a great project. It sounds very nice. Yeah, I think 
it's so important to now that we're able to connect so much more and to be interdisciplinary because that's from what i understand relatively new in the academic world like before 20 years ago it was less common and people were really stuck in their own little box and they wouldn't really get out of it uh, but now we can connect with everyone and we see how many things do overlap in a way with theories with ideas that people are thinking about in different fields um, so that's really nice to bring all of that together i'm also doing an interdisciplinary work and i'm part of an interdisciplinary research center right um, so yeah, that's interesting. And one thing that I'd like to add is that in philosophy, actually, we had this interdisciplinary uh, approach as something we started with. Like philosophy used to be this very broad thing. Isaac Newton has some kind of philosopher in him, and even like in the in the pre-Socratic philosophers, we don't know exactly if we can call them scientists or philosophers. Philosophy made this move into being more close within itself while in its very nature it's more open field um something that i did want to ask you also after we've talked about everything that you've done during your ma is how you were able to combine all of that with having a private and a social life uh that's a very good question uh, i'm not sure what i can answer uh, i made sacrifices so also, also i made sacrifices in my academic life i see friends that uh, they don't have a family or they just don't go out as much uh, or don't make uh, time for their hobbies and they're doing very good philosophical work mm-hmm. and they have time to really sit down and write um, and um, sometimes writing takes me more time than it would take to other people. Uh, but that's a very conscious choice uh, to hold um, to hold a life that is that is disconnected from my academic uh, uh, purposes. And I think it's also important for. Um, for having a significant um, academic journey. I mean, in philosophy especially, we are supposed to discuss things that are about human experience. We are supposed to uh, find the truths about um, what we feel and know and whatever. And if we don't have a lively uh, re- uh, reality, if we lose some kind of some kind of connection to the real world, then you might lack interesting philosophical questions. Right, that's a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, I just noticed that you know I also struggle, and I heard that in what you're saying, like I have friends that don't have that much of a social life, and they are great philosophers because they were maybe able to write more, to publish more than you have at this stage, right? And there's more time, so I'm not worried yet. <laughs> But um, I also look at peers and at other people that I hear about or that I meet in uh, workshops and stuff like that. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, they've done so many things and I'm just so far behind because I also go out every now and then and I also enjoy doing my sports and it's very important for my well-being in general to do that and to keep doing that. And it's very hard for me to find that balance and also not feel guilty when I'm not working, 
Do you also experience something like that? I believe I used to. In this sense, the maybe the application cycles to PhD programs was a very learning uh, experience. Uh, I don't know if you are, if you know of that, but there's a very <coughs> active uh, Facebook group to fill, uh, to graduate applicants in philosophy. Probably you don't know <laughs> because it's a very close thing, uh, and they. Talk about uh, talk about the different things that are preparing for their applications and the different scholarships they have. Uh, there are very helpful discussions in there, but uh, it's very easy to just get into this loop that you are describing of comparing yourself to other people. Uh, and there was a moment that I just uh, said to myself that they need to make a choice here for my own mental health. In thing, uh, keep comparing myself to other people or uh, just try to focus on my own work and see what outcomes I get from it. Uh, that's something that I still struggle to, but uh, that's my general orientation. Right, so also definitely less comparing <laughs> would <Yeah>. be, <laughs> I think in general, the good advice. Yeah. All right. So you already mentioned that while you were teaching, the first half of it was in person, but then it went virtual because of the pandemic. And you have also applied for PhD programs in the middle of the pandemic. So what was that like? Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, I did use a lot of the support of my professors and also of this Facebook group that I told you about, uh, where people from all around the world would share their experiences, share them, their PhD application materials also, which was very helpful. But it's a very stressing time to uh, apply for academic programs, especially because I'm not sure what's the situation in other departments. But in philosophy, we had many big departments that did not open an application cycle at all. Wow. And the other departments um, uh, cut the, the number of spots they had in half or even more. Like I'm right now in a cohort of me and one other person. Wow. That's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and that was the situation in many philosophy departments. Um, so, we, and also at the same time, we had. Um, two times the, the amount of, uh, of applications because a lot of people that were planning to go and work before continuing to a graduate uh, school uh, decided to go to graduate school because it's a safer option. Right, in the in pandemic. Times of the of pandemic, yeah. So mm-hmm. schools also got a very big number of applications. I was happy enough to be accepted to two programs that I really liked. Okay, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, one was in the University of Illinois and the other one, Temple. I'm very happy to be here. Okay, great. So you applied everywhere, not only in Israel, you also applied to uh, multiple universities in the States, obviously? I didn't apply in Israel. Not in Israel at all? Okay. I didn't apply in Israel at all. Like I, I thought it would be a good move to... Uh, to go to the States um, at this point of also my career and also my family situation. Like my kids are not um, big enough for moving to be a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was something that my wife and I were, were thinking about before uh, when making the decision. Um, 
and we apply to the states because right now that's all the best philosophy is, is happening in the world. Uh, so I applied to quite a few programs in the United States. And my criteria was where are the people that I uh, engage with in my research. Okay. So that's, that's the general criteria that I used. Also thinking about where can I get the best city to live in and also where can I get a broader uh, philosophical community that goes beyond my own uh, department. Actually, in, in this respect, the fact that Temple is in Philadelphia, which also is also a city of great universities and is also uh, very close to New York and other places, was uh, something very good in favor of Temple. Right. And now you live next to this lake with dogs and it seems like everyone is happy. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounds yeah, like. Yeah. Great. Okay. Um, and then you started the PhD program also like maybe a little bit in the aftermath of a pandemic, but maybe still in a hybrid form, right? Exactly. At the time we started, um, first I, I joined the department a month later because my second child was born early August okay. and the, 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 the semester was supposed to start in August 20. Uh, so I joined the department a month later, um, but it was uh, the, the graduate seminars were happening in person, but all other things, including teaching, were happening virtually. Okay. Uh, in the spring semester, we got back to, to campus fully in person, but still under uh, a lot of COVID restrictions. All right. Um, so you started a bit later and you moved with your family and the newborn, I hear. And then you started doing your research, right? So what is your PhD research all about? So here in the U.S., you are not supposed to, to decide on your dissertation um, topic right away. We have like usually two years of coursework uh, and then you work on your proposal. I just have one year because I have a master's already. Okay. So next year is my, on August, I start thinking about my proposal. Uh, but um, I've been working on some other papers, um, other projects that I like to uh, engage with and try to publish before uh, starting with my dissertation. Um, and one thing that I had in mind is that I've been working on Kant for pretty much forever. Okay. Let's say five years. So you're ready to move on? Uh, I'm probably going to be back to Kant uh, for my dissertation. Okay. But I wanted to have a break mm. and try to think about other stuff that really interests me. As you said in my introduction, I'm interested in ethics more broadly and more specifically uh, sexual ethics. And right now I'm doing research on autonomy and consent within uh, sexual relationships and more specifically in kink relationships. Okay, so how do you write that in an academic paper? Okay, that's a very interesting question. It's complicated and people, uh, it's, a, it's a very new thing, let's say. Like there, there is a society of philosophy like love and there's a lot of people doing this, a lot of interesting people that have this as their eccentric project. It's hard to do this as a PhD student. It's hard to do this as 
a man also because sexual ethics mm. is mainly a field under feminist philosophy okay uh, which can be a very sensitive topic to be um, writing about as a male philosopher so i'm trying to do this in the most sensitive way possible but in general my question uh, my question arises from the fact that in my view um, almost all our interpersonal relationships have some uh, element of power and dominion to some extent. Our relationships with our parents, with our friends, uh, with our significant others, uh, and it becomes much more intensified in kink relationships, specifically in uh, dominant submissive uh, relationships. And this is a great field to uh, explore what we mean by autonomy in this um, in this spectrum. Okay. I mean, to to which extent you can um, give yourself to someone else, not necessarily in a sexual sense, uh, sense but uh, let's say in a sexual sense, without impacting your own autonomy. Uh, how can you consent to this kind of uh, giving yourself. Uh, so these are the kind of questions that I'm interested in. Okay, so with kink is basically the case study of what philosophers have already been thinking about. Exactly. What I'm interested about is that in the kink community, there's a lot of negotiations of consent. Okay. Like we think that that it is it's possible, uh, morally possible, I mean, morally permissible to... Um, Grant your consent. Uh, grant your consent to not taking your no, for example, as as valid. And in these communities, it's morally permissible. Um, and in philosophy, it's not clear if we can do this kind of fix. Like, for example, in most reasonable uh, ethical theories, you cannot grant yourself as a slave to someone else. All right. For slavery, or for example, when we think about uh, codes and people that grant their freedom of, of will to some Google, we recognize they're not being fully autonomous uh, while doing this. And I agree with this. But here in this uh, specific case, it sounds like it becomes possible in a moral way. Uh, and there's all kinds of mechanisms to make this morally safe. For example, safe words. Uh, so I'm trying to figure out how these work and how they how, how consent can be negotiated to such an extreme level in such relationships. All right. So can I ask uh, what your experience has been as a first year student at a new university in a new country to write about something like that? Like how has your the staff in the department or your supervisor responded? And have you already sent any of this work to uh, a journal? Have editors responded to it? What, how does the academic world respond to topics like this? I haven't sent it to journals yet. I did uh, present it in some conferences. And the responses have been quite good. I'm, I'm, I was also surprised, like, especially okay. in, the, in, the, in my current project, where I ask about autonomy and consent in um, cases of rape fantasies. I um, thought it would be a very hard topic to discuss with people, because, especially because rape is such a, a sensitive and traumatic experience to many, many, many women and men, especially women. But 
I emphasize in my research that what I'm actually interested about is on exploring the limits, the boundaries of autonomy. And here we just have a very exceptional and interesting case to do this. Uh, and that's my genuine motivation. So I think that's something that I'm able to uh, reflect uh, to the audiences in these conferences and they haven't experienced any kind of negative uh, feedback to the moment. My department is a very open department. Okay. Also, in, uh, also within uh, philosophical traditions, I mentioned before the analytical uh, philosophy word. There's actually philosophy, there's two main uh, groups, let's say. There's continental philosophy, which is more connected to, let's say, literature and history, uh, and has a very much uh, less structured way of discussing um, any possible theme. And analytical philosophy, it's much closer to mathematics, logics, and they are very disciplined okay. in terms of structure and the and the clarity. I'm very, I'm being very like broad in these definitions, and they're not yeah. in this way. But the, the, yeah, very general. But that, that's the that's in the abstract. Um, so my department uh, has this very great ability of of mixing the two traditions. Okay. In a beautiful way, uh, so it it allows me as some, someone that came from an analytical department, but also has this interest that are more eccentric and are more connected to the continental side usually, uh, to pursue in a very free way um, uh, these topics. I, I I was instructed by uh, my uh, supervisors to, especially for being in the US and being also in, in academic contact with a lot of young people here, people start studying yeah. in a much earlier <laughs> yeah. stage than in the US uh, to try not to discuss uh, my project that's in the hallways with, with friends and be very sensitive of what, of what I say. And that's something that I do. Okay, fair enough. If that's the only thing they asked you to do, they didn't ask you to not think about it at all and to not work on it, or you haven't gotten any responses that said, this is ridiculous to study, this is not what we do. That actually sounds pretty all right. I think also like um, people understand that the job market is very competitive. And if you have something that makes you unique uh, in the landscape of philosophers and also allows you to pursue academic careers in other departments, let's say in gender studies and women's studies departments, that's great and you should pursue it. That is great. It sounds like a supporting, supportive environment. Totally. All right. Um, so you said that you had one year, uh, whereas usually people in the US have two years before they uh, wrap up their coursework because you already had the MA, so you already did more courses. Uh, before you have to decide what your dissertation is going to be exactly. Um, that year is now almost done, right? So have you any it's clue? It's done, actually. <laughs> Just now, yeah. So have you, do you have an idea where it's going to? My general direction is to go back to, to my roots in Kant and um, explore, like, my question may, may about the postulate of mortality is one specific kind of a moral idea that Kant presents, and I made a parallel 
with one specific aesthetic experience, claiming that the aesthetic experience of the sublime can give us some kind of analogy to, to, to the immortality of our soul. Uh, what I think of exploring is, okay, let's try to map all other uh, problematic moral ideas in Kant that we have some difficulty in uh, meeting with their acquaintance and let's see what kind of other aesthetic tools we can associate with them. So in this way, we would have knowledge of many experiences, uh, experiences of aesthetic nature, just as the interesting, uh, the beautiful, the sublime, as I've been working with, and seeing how ex exactly they contribute to our moral being. Okay, sounds like you did have a lot of thoughts written into that already. <laughs> Does this also need to be uh, approved before you go ahead? Yes, I, I'm supposed to submit an official proposal, uh, proposal, which is of about 30 or 40 uh, pages. Okay. Uh, just giving like the, the general argument and what each chapter or each paper of my dissertation is going to be about and how, and how it gets to its different conclusions. Just a different, uh, just just a very general outline of my project, and after this gets get, this gets approved, then I become a doctoral candidate. Okay, so hopefully soon, but probably within the start of the next academic year. Exactly. All right. What are other obligations uh, that you're under as uh, a doctoral student next year? What is what else will you be doing? at Temple University besides writing your dissertation? So at Temple, we teach quite a lot as part of the program. So I'm going to be teaching in the fall uh, critical thinking. Is that the same course that you liked? From no, no. Actually, it's it's, it, it, it's oh. more like a course about uh, how to recognize uh, logical fallacies and how to uh, build uh, valid arguments and so on. So... Basic. Yeah, very, very basic and very like. Uh, let, let, let's go to the very foundations of what's a logical uh, structure. Okay. I'm also going to be teaching the summer a, a, a course on aesthetics in the meaning of arts, and I'm working on the on these publications that you mentioned. I have this project on accounts of autonomy and rape fantasies. Um, I have I have. My MA thesis that I'm working right now on publishing in two different uh, as two different papers. Uh, so that's currently running uh, under review. Uh, so I hope to to get to my dissertation already with one or two publications. That would be really cool. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Yeah. Thank you. Good luck. Um, of course, as you're. Uh, as your proposal hasn't actually been approved yet, um, it might be a little bit early to ask you this question, but I'm much later on in my PhD and I still get scared of this question too. So I don't know when it's a good time to ask, but it is the most important question of this podcast. So I will anyway. And it is, what are you going to do with that? Once you have your title, what, how, what do you see yourself doing afterwards? That's a question that I heard already in my bachelor's degree, I think, doing yeah. philosophy. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so my general plan is to um, making a career that allows me to continue doing philosophy. 
which the best way to do this is as a philosophy researcher. Um, we plan to go back to Israel as soon as I finish my PhD. All right. And then, you know, start applying to um, jobs in the, the different departments and uh, postdoc uh, positions. Uh, but I'm confident that, that uh, right now I'm just focusing on doing uh, good work and uh, bringing some good publications during my PhD in order to, have, to be in a much better position once I finish to get a job. That sounds about right. Uh, on this show, we've talked a lot about publish or perish uh, and the importance of it and how crazy it is that people who do a dissertation PhD, so not even paper-based, already have so many publications. So I'm sure that if you're already focusing on that now, so early on, only in your PhD process, that it should be all right by the time you finish. Thank you. But it would definitely be back in Israel for you. Uh, yeah, again, I'm, uh, I don't make my plans myself, uh, just by myself. I have a family and I have a wife who has her own career plans. Uh, and so she really wants to go back to Israel and continue with her masters. Uh, so uh, that's definitely something that we're going to be doing once I finish here. Okay, sounds like a promise was made. <laughs> uh. Totally. Also, like uh, most people that I know here are extending their PhD for their sixth year, their seventh year, and so on. And having a family also gives you a very hard deadline because you cannot just go on forever doing your PhD because there's other people uh, depending on you to, to continue with their own lives. Right. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Hopefully there won't be another pandemic to delay you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, then I just have a few more short questions to wrap all of this up. And my first one is, what do you consider to be your most important contribution to your field? And with you, that's only so far. Right. Yeah, uh, that's a strange question to answer as I have such a short <laughs> career path to the moment. But I think the Philosophy 360 project was a very significant thing in the philosophical landscape in Israel. Uh, I did hear from a lot of people that they started their, um, their philosophy studies after coming to one of our events. I heard of people that were working on their interdisciplinary projects and thinking that there was no one interested uh, on this kind of philosophy and suddenly they have an appropriate stage. Um, so I'm very happy that we, we've done this. Right, yeah, and I hope that now that most of the restrictions have lifted, at least where you are and also where I am at the moment, uh, we can build communities like that again and meet people in real life and have the peer discussions in person. Sure, sure. Like right now, I'm also hoping that uh, the Philosophy 360 project continues at the Hebrew University. Uh, there are some undergraduate students that are trying to put uh, the next conference up. And they also had a fourth conference in December already after I left. Okay. So I'm very happy for having some kind of continuity. Yeah, that's nice. That is a great contribution. If you know that it has a life also after you left, right? That that many people are interested in what you started. Then who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished? Um, 
have a professor from the Hebrew University, uh, David Enoch, uh, which is a legal theorist and a moral philosopher, which has an incredible, incredible, incredible intellectual output. Is a very interesting person. Uh, and he also made himself a mission to uh, nurture the next generation. So although we are in very different fields, in very is a much more analytical uh, approach than I am, he has been a very significant person uh, in my uh, academic path. I had two people like this. I had Enoch and uh, Amir Engel, which is right now the chair of the Germanic, the, the Germanic Studies Department at the Hebrew University, which from very different perspectives shaped how I see my ideal academic persona. So Amir was much more of the uh, friendly and caring professor that reminded me of asking how my research affects people that are not in philosophy departments and how it can, how it can be communicated uh, outside. And uh, David uh, was the one who shaped how I see a right way to approach uh, and respect uh, students intellectually. Great. Um, I've heard a lot of really bad stories about all kinds of staff in all kinds of departments all over the world. So I'm happy to hear that you had a good experience and that these two people are really supporting the next generation, like you said. That's, uh, that's good to hear, the good stories as well. All right, then I have one more question, and that is the easiest one. How do you relax after a hard day of work? Uh, so you already met my rye whiskey. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. And I also love to play the guitar. Actually, before uh, going to academia, I, well, I had this crazy plan of becoming a musician. It didn't happen, but I uh, <coughs> still try to play a little guitar after the kids go to sleep. Nice. That's very cool. All right, well, thank you so much uh, for chatting with me today and for sharing all of your thoughts. And I also want to thank the audience for listening again to another episode. Don't forget to connect with us uh, with the handle at what to do with that on social media, on YouTube and on our website. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, Ellie, I wanted to ask you one more thing because uh, I remember that you said in the start that you actually started studying economy. All right, yes. right? And because you wanted to be an entrepreneur and open a business, what was on your mind? What business did you plan on opening? I already had a business, actually. I opened a business right before, uh, a year before uh, starting my uh, PhD. Sorry, <laughs> we talked so much about the PhD that I connected right. this. Started my BA. Uh, I was importing some uh, uh, clothing brand from Brazil. Uh, in sportswear and uh, uh, sportswear and uh, <clears throat> uh, underwear, uh, it was just a great, uh, a great uh, business opportunity. Uh, but um, I think it started to decline, uh, to, to to go down after I decided that I'm not that, that's not my type. I'm just okay. really into philosophy. Uh, so my interest just moved. I was very young. I was 21 at this time. Mm-hmm. So. And was, was that before or after you changed your mind about being a musician? It was after. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so plans change, right? Plans change yeah. all the time. <laughs> That's all right. 